Vodka. 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 Hi everyone, this is Amber Love and you are listening to Vodka O'Clock. And if you uh, haven't checked it out yet, there is a new Patreon set up where you can sponsor the show and the website. Just go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked. And you can pledge as little as a dollar per creation, which means like a dollar a week, basically. So today, joining Vodka O'Clock for the very first time is Elsa S. Henry. And she is here to talk about this new, exciting tabletop role-playing game called Dead Scare, which has a few more days left on Kickstarter. So we want to make sure that you're all aware of it and that the word gets out there. So Elsa, this is so cool to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So um, Dead Scare is obviously a great play on the words Red Scare from when America and Russia were kind of like threatening to nuke each other. So what is the summary of, of the Dead Scare game? So it's 1953, and you're all at home doing your thing. All the player characters in this game are housewives or their children. And a attack by the Russians has happened. And the president basically turns into a zombie on camera, and you don't know what happened. Dead Scare is basically what happens if the Russians were to develop a zombie virus and drop it into all the major city centers of the United States. Uh, Women basically have to survive with whatever they can find at home. Picket fences turn into pikes. Your Hoover vacuum, if you have the right moves, it's an apocalypse world game, uh, can turn into an explosive device. So it basically is a game about um, being, I guess, inventive in the face of abject terror. Okay. And one of the things that makes this game more than the average zombie game is how you've taken the 1950s when there was a lot more oppression. We still um, hadn't even hit the the peak of uh, any kind of civil rights movement. Right. So, um, you know, and, and here basically your your staff that's made Dead Scare is at least mostly all women. So why did you tackle the 1950s um, when there was so much oppression instead of like, say, now when we still have to fight for this? Well, I kind of felt like in terms of a way, this whole idea started because my husband is super into The Walking Dead and uh, I'm not really a zombies person. I'm not either, so I'm kind of, you know, really curious about it because I really am not that involved with zombies. Right. So so my husband and I are watching The Walking Dead. The the agreement was he and I would watch The Walking Dead together and then we would watch Downton Abbey. That was sort of we we could trade off what shows we liked. Okay. Um and as I was watching The Walking Dead, women just didn't have a role. Like it was kind of there's Michonne, but other than that there are no super badass women. And I wanted to have, I wanted to tell stories in an apocalypse where women were the central focus. And one way of doing that is to take an era like the 1950s where genders get super segregated during the day and then have an attack happen. So that what centralized areas where most of the men are, are the places where zombies are created, leaving women who are usually in the suburbs or at home in smaller boroughs like in New York. And they're the ones having to sort of escape or fight back. Well, I find that really interesting because I I had tried watching The Walking Dead only because I heard um, 
I was warned not to read the books because it's apparently like really triggering and upsetting. Yeah, I so read the books. I um I read I basically read some descriptions. And I was like, nope, that is not something I want to experience. Yeah, exactly. I kind of like Happy Zombies, like Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Happy silly things. I'm good with that. But um, so yeah, so during the first episode, I didn't even make it through the whole thing. I'm like, I can't do it. I just can't do this show. And you know, so I appreciate how it became, you know this grassroots kind of indie comic that just became an empire. I think that's an incredible success Absolutely. story. Uh, it's just not something I'm going to get into. <laughs> well, it's funny. Um, one of my playtesters, uh, Cthulhu Chick on Twitter, okay, she, um, she doesn't like zombies. And she said that she doesn't think of Dead Scare as a zombie game. She thinks of Dead Scare as a game about survival. Because, yes, there are zombies, but it's far more about the stories that you tell about the communities that you're playing in. Okay, yeah. And that's that's what a lot of people do say of of The Walking Dead, which surprises me. That's more like how the how the humans can turn on each other or support each other or they make their tribes, whatever it is. So when you have it here, like in a game that centers on women and saving their children, it paints a very different picture, especially like I you have non-white characters in this how does it play so one of the things that i talk about in the book is that um segregation is a really important piece um a lot of the questions that you're encouraged to ask during character creation are what religion your character is a part of what what your racial background is because those tensions when the united states gets attacked are going to actually flare up even more so I'm asking players to really confront racism within their games. I'm asking players to confront xenophobia and um, religious sort of tensions because I think that it's important, in, especially in that era, to not ignore them. Right, and that's um, that's one of the reasons that I really was was so curious about why you picked the 50s, you know, like before the 60s even and um when today we're recording this here it's 2015 and we watch russian president putin and his extremely transphobic homophobic fear of freedom of speech throwing people in prison um you know so this game could have been set in today's timeline it could have been but i felt like my background is as a historian so I like exploring um, I like exploring sort of historical settings. I also will point out that I actually do have a section in one of the postcards across America, which is our stretch goals. I do have someone who studied the lavender scare, and she's going to be writing a stretch goal about sort of um, homophobia and the lavender scare as well. Okay, fantastic. So it's I, yes, it could have been written for this era for the time we live now, but for me as a historian, I was kind of interested to see what would happen if I set a zombie apocalypse before. So I hadn't really seen anything historical with zombies. Well, other than Pride and Prejudice with zombies, but that's a whole other thing. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you if you had, because there is so much zombie mythos out there, um, you know, going back to Romero, uh, I was wondering if you had any specific influences um 
because it does seem to be everywhere that once Pride and Prejudice with zombies came out, it seemed like everything was being slashed with zombies. Yup. I mean, I can picture, and what I picture in my head, as soon as I started um, looking at your Kickstarter, and uh, I was thinking about the 50s, and I saw that great, the great illustration uh, on there, and I thought, oh my gosh, I can just picture people cosplaying in, as this. It has already happened. Okay, that's good. Because <laughs> I, I, I have a really, um, a couple really adorable pinup dresses, and... Um, you know, I could just imagine like how many of my friends love dressing up in vintage clothes or vintage inspired clothes and it really getting into some kind of role play. And it's just funny that you'd be sitting around drinking your martini or whatever and planning how you beat up zombies with exactly. kitchen, kitchen appliances. Like, how can I take how can I weaponize my blender? Like, and that's <laughs> something that I that's part of why I wanted to make it this game in this era was that I felt like the you know, if it were if it were to be set in 2015, you wouldn't have the same dial that you can have in a 1950s game. That the game can be dialed to leave it to Cleaver, the you know leave it to Beaver crossover with zombies, which sure. is super campy and ridiculous. Or you can turn the dial all the way up to 11 and have it be this super dark game about you know racial tensions in America. Yeah, that's one of the things that I remember from the Romero film, I guess. And I'm so, like I said, I'm so bad at zombie lore. I don't even know which one was first. But there was how there was an African-American man and, a, you know, and a white woman. You have to be like holed up in the house. Yeah. And, you know, because it's so tropey in horror movies that it's like, oh, you know, your black character is going to be the one killed first. Yep. You, you know, your woman is going to end up in her underwear. Yep. <laughs> and I'm trying so, to break some of those tropes. But I'm also trying to show why those tropes exist, I guess. Okay, so let's um, fill in fill in this gap for me as, you know, uh, what's the game history here that made you say, okay, we need a game that involves women and yet isn't, um, you know, like it doesn't exclude men from playing it? Well... <laughs> There are no male adult characters in this game. Um, the, the only adult, there are all, the only adult playbooks are all women. You can play small children who are boys. But part of why I wanted to make this game was because I, as a female designer, wanted to see something where I could really enroll femininity in badassery, if you will. Like, there's a certain image of a woman beating a zombie to death with a rolling pin that you're not going to get if you don't have this sort of closed ranks mentality. Mm-hmm. I could, just, But, I mean, I, st- I know plenty of men that would play women like this. Precisely. Right. That's kind of because... my point. Like, guys will play this, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that this is a it's a game by women and non-binary writers about women and children but it's a game that's not it's not just for women because one of the things that bothers me is whenever I've talked about dead scare sort of in a lot of outside circles I've had men ask me but why why can't I play a man I said well, oh I expect you to be asked that a I, lot yeah. yeah I do and my response is well do you really need to 
Yes. I mean, think about the the creativity of coming up with weapons that were considered tools of women instead of power tools of men. Yep. And I mean, I had so much fun creating the weapons chart. Uh <laughs> I can imagine. So, tell me some of the examples from there. Um, frying pans, which do plus two damage, blunt force damage. Um, jump ropes are a garrote weapon in this game. Um, <laughs> jacks can do damage, mouse traps. Uh, stiletto heels. So. That's a good one. Yeah, I was pretty happy about that one. Hat pins. Ooh. Knitting needles. Yeah, those are good ones. So I mean, if, if you think about, it, I don't know, have you been watching Agent Agent Carter? I'm I'm actually behind on it. Of course I have. I'm behind too. Okay, so I there was like one cool scene which, and I've seen um, men do this move from from martial arts where they don't have something like a blunt object, you know, like a rolling pin like that, or they don't, but they'll take um, something like a sheet in order to wrap it around an arm that's coming, thrusting at yep. them. And that way they can pull the arm out, of, you know, with the weapon out of their way. And, and it, you know, so it's sort of like a really fast defense move, but becomes offensive, like in the blink of an eye. And I hope that people do that with apron strings. Yeah, so there's, you know, like you're talking about knitting and yarn and all these cool things. Something something else that you'll see in, that you've seen in Agent Carter, which um, comes into play in this game, is I'm a disabled woman, and so one of the things I wanted to do just for myself was make sure that disabled characters could actually survive in this game. That's really good to hear. I'm, I appreciate that. So I actually wrote a whole section on weaponizing mobility devices, and uh, you you've seen it on Agent Carter when. Um, the, the guy with the crutch, whose name I'm forgetting, beat somebody down with his crutch. I think that's Dan. Yeah, Daniel? I think it is too. But that happened in Agent Carter, and you can absolutely do that in Dead Scare. That's good. Yeah, I, because I... See, there's something... Um, I'm so glad that you brought this up, because there's something that kind of bothers me with the way disabilities are sometimes handled. And to me, there's a big difference between... Something like that. Daniel taking his cane, you know, uh, we used to see Dr. House doing it all the time if you watched House. Yep, um, taking the cane and, and using that as opposed to it specifically being created as a weapon, which is why the, the new movie Kingsman really turns me off. I haven't I, seen it yet. Yeah, I, I probably won't see it. I mean, you know, kudos to Mark Miller again. Great success story taking comics to this huge empire. But... Um, you know, to have somebody with prosthetics where the prosthetics are intended to be weapons instead of, like, it's a woman who happens to have prosthetic legs. Yeah, I, I'm definitely torn on that, because on the one hand, I kind of love the concept of her weaponized prosthetic leg, but on the other hand, I'm entirely in your camp. Yeah, I, it's just, it's one of those things where, like, um, I almost, like, have this hard time really explaining why it bothers me, but it's like, when I see it, it makes me feel some kind of cringe and uncomfortableness. And, and I can't always explain why it's like, okay, I understand that that person we're showing is going to be as perfectly abled as everybody else on the team. Mm -hmm. And at the same time though, it's sort of like being singled out. What kind of makes me nuts about it is mostly that I, I wish she weren't a villain. 
Because I'm, yeah, I'm kind of tired of being shoved into the villain category. Okay, is that... Did, I never, again, not my thing. I never saw the Grindhouse movies that Robert Rodriguez... I didn't see uh, them either. So the girl with the shotgun leg, again, I have no idea. Like, it just looks so absurd to me. But but for me, it's... Um, I, I'm blind in one eye and I have a cataract. And so when I was growing up, all the kids in my playground would think that I was evil or something. Oh, I see. So what I'm sort of... What I'm against is always having disabled people be the bad guy. Yeah. It feels like we're always cast in the evil role or the creepy role. So it would be nice to see somebody with a prosthetic leg who was the hero. Yeah. And I that's I think it was maybe from like the Electra franchise. Um I think her teacher was blind. And again, it's sort of like, you know, he trains assassins. Exactly. You know? So I, um, I, I made very sure that player characters can be disabled and that they can be just as awesome as their able-bodied con- counterparts. Okay, so with these different kinds of um, playbooks that you have, you mentioned that you had uh, you know, n- non-binary gendered contributors to the project. So in the 1950s, people were not exactly open about that sort of thing. So how, like, is there content regarding that in the game? Um, at the moment, no. It's something I'd like to address, uh, but I haven't figured out a good way to do it. I do talk about, um, sort of, I do talk a lot about same-sex attraction. Um, I talk about lesbians. I talk about uh, sort of gay communities because I think it's important for people to know that those things did exist, and you can play them. Um, yeah, there might be a little, like, misunderstanding that, like, oh, somehow it was, like, just invented. Like, no. Right. <laughs> so I make it very clear that there are lesbians in this game and that you should and can explore those themes. Um, but I haven't addressed sort of... I haven't addressed sort of gender identity as such just because I'm not, I don't feel like I'm the right person to write that. So I'm actually going to talk to one of my non-binary writers about what they would like to see within the content. So when it comes to a game like this and designing it, uh, is I think about things like Dungeons and Dragons, how they come out with, the, well, first of all, they're extremely robust and complicated. Um, so with your design, is there, there's, this opportunity for it, you know, advanced play, like, you know, you put out a new version, like, in two years that has more options or something? I think, I, I hope in the future to release more sort of supplementary material. I'd like to address more of the setting at some point. I think I'd like to hopefully write some more adventures for the game. Um, there's been some talk of maybe there being a LARP. So a lot of people have asked me if I'm going to write Dead Scare the LARP. But I don't have anything set in stone as of yet because I've got a couple of big projects coming up after this one. Okay, so what um, what is the gameplay then like? Because like I said, my limited experience with, with D&D, uh, you know, I know that there's, you have a game master, you have dungeon masters telling the story, and then you roll the dice um, to see what the choice is, reaction 
So um, the way that a Dead Scare game works, it's run by it's run through the system called Apocalypse World. Um, so everybody picks a playbook. Uh, for example, you can play the troublemaker or the scout or the wife or the preacher's wife or uh, the teacher, the nurse, the grandmother, um, the goody two-shoes. That's one of my favorites. Uh, and then each each of those playbooks has moves. So as, as you go through this game, the story, storyteller kind of walks you through your scenes, you, there are opportunities to make moves. For example, in the last game that I ran of Dead Scare, the Troublemaker had the mini Manhattan Project move, which basically allows you to construct explosives out of anything you can find. And they rolled a 10 to construct the massive explosives device that would blow up an entire building. But then they botched the roll on a f two for actually making it explode after they'd left the building. And everybody died. Okay, so um, when you when somebody gets the game, do they have their own... Uh, usually gamers usually have their own, their own bag of dice, but... Uh, do you have uh, specific dice for this? Um, there's specific dice that you will want to use, but they're the, they're the dice that everybody, regardless of whether or not you're a gamer, has. Uh, Six-sided okay. dice come with most board games, and you just need two of them per player to play. And then the storyteller needs a d20, which most people don't have, but you can get one pretty easily. Uh, yeah, we sell them for like 50 cents at the comic book exactly. store. Um, and the d20 is for the zombies. Because the the GM will basically roll it from time to time to see how many zombies are around in the area. Okay. So, um, how many players are playing at one time? Uh, the largest group I've run was seven, and it worked. It was pretty hectic, but I managed to get everybody spotlight time. The smallest group I've run for was four, and... It was a little bit slower. I think it runs best at five, just because of the um, social interactions that are going on at the same time as people are fighting zombies. Okay, five sounds like a, a you know pretty decent number. Five. It's like you know as many as you would have for poker or you know, gin, whatever. Right. <laughs> um, so when you developed a, this. Uh, the whole concept and the the game, and you had to write uh, all these different playbooks. What's the beta testing process like for this kind of game? Um, right now, I'm play testing it at at conventions. So I play tested it at Metatopia this year, and then I did some more play tests this past weekend at Dreamation. And I'm now going to move into doing some uh, Google Plus Hangout games, just to kind of get a longer form campaign running, so that I can see how it works in the long form, because this can be a full campaign game. It doesn't have to just be a one-shot. Uh, you can start this game at the first day of the outbreak, and it can go all the way through the second reconstruction. Um, second reconstruction is what happens when the president shows up, and the president is Joseph McCarthy. Okay, and this is because um, President Truman gets infected right on TV. Correct. So... They basically dropped the bomb inside of D.C. and a whole lot of people in government got turned into zombies. 
DC basically goes into chaos. And the only person who resurfaces is Joseph McCarthy. And that sounds very dangerous in itself, even without us being zombies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I actually, one person who was talking about it said, I'm not sure which is scarier, the zombies or President Joseph McCarthy. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, it just, it feels like we still have these people who are that extreme and black and white in how they view things, like running. We absolutely do. Running things. It's, it's a little scary. Um. Now, uh, and thinking of, of that, one of the, the persecutions that we see today has a lot of Islamophobia and there's still anti-Semitism. And I, it's uh, thinking about the 1950s and how different we were and how different schools were. I mean, we still have like specifically Jewish schools for, for those communities who choose to send their yes, children to school that way. So I... Um, and I know that at least one of your contributors is a Jewish woman. So I was I'm wondering. I'm also a Jewish woman. So. Oh, well, there we go. Okay. So how um, how do you incorporate? I saw that you had some non-Christian culture, like right up front in the description of what the story is going to be about and everything. How you talked about, um, you know, one housewife, and then you talked about another. So how do you include this? knowing like the that the scientists involved were scientists who were also part of the holocaust well i felt like there was no way to write a game about the dead walking without acknowledging what had happened in world war 2 um and especially if one of the main locations is new york you're going to have a lot of Jewish people who are in Brooklyn see The Walking Dead, and it's going to remind them of the Holocaust. There's no way it can't. So I wanted to make sure that I included Jewish stories in addition to Christian stories in the book, because those would be very important in that kind of a situation. So... Was it something that you um, you not only felt that you needed to do because of you know what you've seen uh, is I don't know just um, like just wondering like where where you could go with with handling other religious aspects of something like a zombie apocalypse because I'm sure I mean there's always jokes. Every year at Easter time, we're approaching Easter. There's always jokes every year that, you know, whether Jesus was a zombie or a lich. So, yep. <laughs> so there's ways of sort of bringing religion into something without making it sound like a lecture. Yeah, and that's the section that I've been having the most trouble writing because I want to get it right. But it is in there. I do talk about sort of the religious perspectives on this. Um, there's also a sidebar in the book that is called the Jewish Zombie Diaspora. And it does talk about how, after the zombie apocalypse, how Jewish communities sort of float off into their own areas because of the threat of the zombies. So I'm also going to address Christian viewpoints. But I want again, I want to make sure that it's respectful. I don't want to make a joke about religion because I don't think that that's appropriate in a game that is this serious. 
Okay. I mean, it's so also this... a hilarious game if you play it right, but I want to make sure I'm respectful of people's beliefs. Okay. And, you know, I, th- I think especially when it comes to the horror genre, there are so many religious overtones just right simply because it's something horror-based. Yep. I mean, like the, the Exorcist. I mean, yep. It's, yep. it's just inherent to the genre. And when you read uh, different scriptures and stuff, they, it sounds like such fantastical elements and, and everything. So here we've got gameplay that um, will it give the players the the opportunity to sort of like come up with uh, with moves that are impacted that way? Absolutely. The- um, there's actually a whole there's a whole mechanic for that. There's a courage stat, which basically, as you see horrible things happen, you lose points of courage. One of the ways to get those courage points back is to have a prayer circle or to meditate or to light candles on shop. It's basically you can make a faith-based role. I love this. This is, I've never seen anything like that before. So it's, it's basically you can regain your courage by, by trying to practice your faith. That's one way of doing so. Okay. Because I know like um, when I used to play city of heroes, which was a, a video game, so it wasn't tabletop, but um there, like if you were some kind of medic or healer, it really just depended on how you felt like your character was, but there was nothing inherently religious or faith-based about right. it. It was like, you know, it was your power, but if you built your character to be wearing long robes, then that's what you built, but it didn't, right. there was nothing specific to it. So like I had one character that was like a robot who could, you know, who could heal. It was like no big deal. Um, the, you know, it was just, um, there was, a, there was like so much freedom because it, they had to make it generic for like seven different archetypes. Right. <laughs> um, so now would the children characters have, uh, some sort of, uh, disadvantages? Like their roles don't count as much because they're children? Right. Well, they, it's not that their roles don't count as much. One of the things that I, that, that exists in the game is that children have less health points. So you want to be really careful about... So you can die faster. You can die faster, and I don't recommend it because it's kind of traumatizing. Uh, but children also have special roles. Uh, one of the roles in... One of the playbooks is the runner, and it's something that I created specifically for the game. The runner is the kid who used to be the newspaper delivery, or the milkman's assistant, or maybe the librarian's assistant, the kid who runs books to and from classrooms, the kid who is, gets up at 6 o'clock in the morning to deliver the neighborhood paper. Uh, in in the outbreak and in the subsequent years, runners are children who actually carry information from town to town because they're quick and they're small okay. and they can hide. So they're, they're basically the ones who create a kind of communications network. That's cool. So with the... Um you know, if you think about the limitations of technology from back then, like you're saying, you would have had to either had a telephone that worked or gotten, like, in your car or on foot and headed to somebody somewhere else in order to deliver the message. Right, or, or you have a radio and somehow you manage to get the one station that's working. 
So um, now, are these things that would be specific to which character you're playing, or or if I'm playing, um, you know, maybe somebody who's like not as wealthy and don't have a phone in my house, could I like, you know? whether it's roll a die or whatever, and get to somebody else's house. Um, that depends. Well, and that's where the social skills come in. Um, everybody in the game is, you're all neighbors. So if you get along with the one person who has a phone, maybe they'll let you call out. But let's say that you don't have a really nice lawn. You don't, you know, follow neighborhood watch ordinances, and you don't break your lawn every fall. What if this is the crotchety old lady who really doesn't like how disrespectful you are of the neighborhood? Okay, so like the the character that you have written and she's worried about her husband in Brooklyn, she hasn't heard from right. him. Right. Um, is, is that a playable character? Absolutely. Or is that, okay. And um, with these... Uh, the playbooks. When I took a look at the Kickstarter page, I really liked the the artwork that you have. It's, Elizabeth uh, Simmons is amazing. Yeah, really gorgeous and quirky kind of stuff. It it really lends itself well to being paired with this game. So, uh, how much art is actually in, involved in that? Um, I mean, there's a fair amount of art. Uh, there will be sketches for each character archetype, and then there's a lot of art throughout the book. Um, there will be PSAs for how to survive. The Apocalypse, uh, kind of a la duck and cover. Um, there's a there's a poster that will be in the book that's the Better Dead Than Zed poster. Uh, so we're we're trying to sort of show the worlds that the game inhabits. I think my favorite illustration I I snuck in I snuck myself into the game in one illustration and I'm not ashamed of that. Oh, I, of course, of course you do. Um, in one illustration, there's a, a girl with a white cane stabbing a, zo- a zombie with it, and that's me. Okay, and I so the the playbook has, um, or I should say, like the 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 main book is it just one, and then you you can figure out the characters they're all within one book or is it like a whole bunch of separate books oh so so a playbook that's what uh that's what's what's called your character template in the apocalypse world setting so there's about 25 of them and you get to pick which one you want to play uh it's not that they're different books it's that they're all encapsulated into the same text that's okay. just the name of the character sheet okay so um because i was thinking about um you know like having the big monster manual or whatever right. and then we all like xerox copies of how we built our characters right and- so they're all encapsulated it's like um instead of you pl- picking whether or not you're a bard or a warrior or a cleric you're picking whether you're the housewife uh, whether you're the teacher or the nurse or the troublemaker or the goody two-shoes okay well that sounds fun and I can still, seriously, all I can do is picture people doing this, in, like, dressed up. I know, right? <laughs> I, can't, I can't not picture it that way. I, I really want to have a party where I have everybody over to play it, and everybody has to dress in pearls. Yeah, of course you do. You need your tea gloves, you need your little pretty, pretty gloves, and, um, you know, pearls, and um, as much hairspray as possible. And I will drink my martini out of a teacup. Sure, like, I'm, yeah, because, like you, I'm having a screwdriver right now, um, 
but it does seem like a very martini type of game. Yep. Or or maybe something like um, an old fashioned. But. Yes. Or an aviator. But something posh. This is a posh game. Well, it's posh game right up until you're ripping someone's day dress off because they got covered in blood and you don't want them to get infected. Well, there's that. I mean, it's almost like, you know, a Barney sale. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the images that you just gave me. I'm delighted. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, kudos to Elizabeth Simmons for such clever artwork. It's put so it's already put in so many images into my head. She's great. I mean, I I really enjoy working with her. She sends me stuff, and I basically get all excited, and then I have to go write. That's good because I feel like what we've developed is a really great working partnership, where we feed off of each other, and so it's become this really, uh, it's become a really great creative team. I definitely think we'll be working together again in the future. So is this your first Kickstarter? This is my this is my first Kickstarter. This is my fir- first fully written RPG. Okay, um, because I, uh, it's just so daunting. I mean, I've I've talked to a lot of people who run Kickstarters. It seems like everybody I know has run a Kickstarter. Um, and what you have, even though it's your first Kickstarter, I noticed that your publisher, this is like their sixth. Yes, that's why I went with the publisher, because I wasn't quite sure how to do the whole Kickstarter thing. So they have it all figured out and should inspire a lot of confidence in, in anybody. Yes. Okay, so you now when it comes to something like Kickstarter, they, this platform in particular, you have to make goal or you don't get any that's of the funds. That's correct. So it's kind of different than some of the other platforms out there. So I know that nobody ever wants to think about not reaching their goal and you want to think about stretch goals. But in the event that you don't reach the goal, do you have a plan to relaunch it a different way? Or yeah, if, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't fund, I intend to take a step back, spend some time finishing the game, talk to my team and figure out what we need to do differently. Um, okay. You know, it's it's very important to me that this game gets published. Okay. And um, but since you're on a really good track right now, uh, as far as where you are and how many days you have left, we talked about stretch goals, and you mentioned something about the lavender scare. So the stretch goals I saw you had. Um, you're talking about postcards. So explain what the postcards are. So the postcards across America are um, 500 to 1,000 word page. Uh, descriptions of things. We've got people doing settings. For example, we have Minerva Zimmerman, who's doing Ballard in Seattle, Washington. Uh, There will be zombie fish. Um, We have uh, another author writing about the Lavender Scare. We have another author doing Texas. We have someone else who will be addressing uh, segregation and Jim Crow after the zombie apocalypse. Uh, I'm going to be writing about my alma mater, Sarah Lawrence College, and what happens there. Okay. Because I felt like a women's college was a place that needed to be addressed. Um, so it's there's a lot of different settings, and we've got around 20 of them that we would love to publish. Okay, and so you were doing these releases based um based on backers and based on right. how much how much came in as far as the funds. That's go. right. Okay. So are you do you're still doing it every 
$500 or is it $500 after you meet? It's $500 after we meet the goal. Okay, I see. So um, is that something that you already had worked out ahead of time or was it um, was it something that like working with Exploding Rogue Studios, who's familiar with running Kickstarters, did they help you with that? They were the ones who helped me with that. I'm I'm sort of... I'm the creative. I'm the one who's talking to people about the game. They're the ones making the decisions on the Kickstarter. Okay. So, um, with the Kickstarter funds, that's you have digital distribution or printed distribution, right? right? Okay. So, do you already have like an idea of how many printed copies you'd be able to make, or is it all going to depend on whatever the final? It's total? all going to depend on what the final total is. Um, I'm hoping that we make enough that we can have some in the back to sell after the Kickstarter ends. Uh, we'll see what happens. All right. One of my favorite reward tiers, um, because like all Kickstarters, there's, um, you know, there's different levels of backing and stuff. So I got such a kick out of the one you called the corporate sponsor. <laughs> uh, I thought that was the funniest part uh, where you, if you, pledged a certain amount, you can pick a household product that gets turned into a, you know, a, a weapon. And so what is the reward exactly? Like you get the advertisement of what? You get the advertisement. So that actually came out of a Twitter conversation. Uh, one of our stretch goal writers, Sarah Hood, um, post, posted on Twitter about 1950s advertisements. And I responded with Ajax Soap. Cleans, cleans zombie blood out of your clothes faster than you can say lickety-split or something like that. So so somebody um, would just, like, name a product and you'd somehow build a right. crazy... So, you know, if you wanted to have Mattel Tommy guns, we could totally do that. That's how the kids, you know, clean up the yard. Uh, <laughs> okay, so if I said light bulbs, you would figure out how to make light bulbs into something helpful? Yes. That could be tricky, but I could do it. Um, but it's it's sort of the idea is you know corporate sponsorships. So it's it's even you could even pick a radio show like The Shadow and how The Shadow is teaching people about you know zombies. Okay. Okay, and it would be clever. Like you could then have since it's customized. I mean, it's not built yet or anything. Um, they could just like name it after themselves. Exactly. It's you could totally, you could totally have the, you know, Amber Love uh, dishwasher. Yeah. That cleans blood off of knives better than any other dishwasher. Sure. Sure. I that's just that that seems like there's so much potential, like unlimited potential. There really is, and we're very excited about it. So, how many people does it take then to make? Is that just you working with Elizabeth since she's doing designing stuff or is it something uh, some other sort of yeah elizabeth and i will be doing that okay and, although i'm sure uh, our layout artist tiara agresta will probably also lend a hand with that so these ads will run then in the inside the book yeah they'll be I, we're going to have a section at the back of the book that's all of the corporate sponsorships okay so they'll just uh they'll just look like regular ads from old papers right Cool, cool. Yeah, they sound like a lot of fun. Um, 
So we talked about uh, that you were beta testing recently at Dreamation, and um, sorry I missed it, but it's like uh, I'm, it's winter. I hibernate. I hear you. Um, <laughs> Maybe I'll see you at Maelstrom. Uh, yeah, that's because that's uh, April. They, April. So they do uh, three or four shows throughout the year. Yeah, it's, and, uh, I actually now work for them. I'm their accessibility coordinator, so I'm at all right. of them now. Great, and they're all at the Hyatt. That's correct. Yeah, the Hyatt is a really beautiful hotel in Morristown, New Jersey, and they, so uh, Double Exposure Team runs these gaming conventions, and they are the most peaceful, fun conventions I've ever been to. They're because so welcoming. They're exactly like they're welcoming, and you know, like when I go to a big Comic Con, I feel like I'm intruding in a way on my friends who have table space like oh my yeah, god I I don't do big comic cons anymore unless if I'm a guest I don't do them because I mean like there isn't even any place to sit down so right. and I'm now you, I'm now a wheelchair user for long conventions so I just I can't do it it just makes yeah. me nuts I don't blame you I mean and, even at, at a dreamation somebody pushed uh, some bro who wasn't a part of the convention pushed my chair forward, and since I don't, didn't have brakes on my loaner, I just started rolling into the person I was talking to. Oh, no. I was like, well, this is why I need my own chair with brakes. Yeah. That's, that's a shame. And that's, and that's one of the, the nice things about the, the double exposure events, though, is that if you were able to, like, like if that was more serious and you felt really um, uh, hurt or so, in some way, they would just, like, they're so helpful oh, to yeah. take care of. Absolutely. Um, Avenel is an amazing convention coordinator and she really does care about the community that comes. Yeah. And they, um, they make sure that there's accessible bathrooms and they had a gender neutral bathroom yep. and they're, it's really like, I can't say enough good things about their shows because I've always had a good time. And like I said, even though, even if I'm not tabling somewhere, I know that I can just go and relax and have a drink in the lobby. Exactly. And, not feel like I'm bothering anybody or there might be a conference room empty and since it's part of the show you can just go relax whereas other shows it's so like you you know the the notion of being someplace and not even being able to just sit down and rest for an hour yeah I mean I do Gen Con now because that's where I get a lot of my work but Gen Con wrecks me it sounds I've heard how busy Gen Con is it's huge it just sounds Um, I work for storium.com Right, I wanted to ask you about and, that. And uh, Stephen Hood, my boss, and I were standing. There's a sort of balcony area above where everybody waits to get onto the con floor. And on Thursday, when they were ready to open the con floor, we were standing above all of the people, and it was just insane. There was like thousands of people crowding on each other to get into this one space. Yeah, and that I actually. If I'm, you know, if I'm not tabling or helping anybody with a table, because I, I don't usually have my own table, but if I'm not helping anybody with a table and I don't have to be there at a certain time, I usually get to shows late because it's easier to get into yep. <laughs> than trying to be there on time. Yep. So I'm, yeah, I'm so so glad you brought up Storium because I I remember when that was kicking off. And it seemed like the hottest thing being talked about on Twitter amongst all of the writing community for about two weeks. And then it, I felt like it disappeared and I didn't even know if it still existed. So I, I want to hear about Storium and where it stands and what it is and what kind of people, you know, get involved with it. So Storium is an online storytelling game. 
Um, it's basically uh, group-based storytelling. So you have a narrator and a bunch of players, but it's basically up to everybody to tell the story the way they want to tell it. Um, there are cards that you can use to have strong or weak outcomes. And I recommend this, this system to a lot of people. Uh, I recommend this system to people who are writers who want to stretch their writing skills and have fun with it. I recommend it to people who are gamers who want to try out a new kind of gaming. Um, by the way, if you can hear that thumping noise in the background, that's my dog wagging her tail in her sleep. Okay. Happy, happy dreams. Yup. Um, so it's, it's a system that I think works really well for both gamers and writers. And what I think is interesting about it is how much both ends of those spectrums sometimes struggle with it because it's not just writing a story and it's not just playing a game. So is there is is there some sort of achievement other than other than the fact that you're telling a story? I mean, is there points and winning? Like, what well, is- I mean, like I said, you have the cards and you have various outcomes. For example, like you play one card that's a strong card. And you push the challenge that your narrator has set to a strong outcome. Or if you play a weak card, you push it towards a weak outcome. Um, Players can gain control of the narrative through getting strong outcomes on those challenges. Um, I guess the the winning would be considered finishing your story. Okay, so there's a definite end to each story? Right. You do chapters, and as... And at the end of a story, you end it with the last chapter, and then it's done. And you can actually go read all of the finished stories on Storium. It's part of what I like about it, is that you can go and read all of these stories that people have told together. Okay, and so is this something that you have to all be logged on at the same time to do? No, it is not a requirement. Granted, some people want to play speed chess Storium, in which case you probably want to be online because everybody's moving very quickly. But most games, it's not required that you be online all at the same time. Most games, they move probably a couple scenes a week, and you can participate when you can. Okay, so are you building your own character, or is it like you're assigned a character? You build your own character. Um the narrator basically sets up the, the story and the world, and then you basically submit your character to the narrator. And the narrator decides, oh, this works, go right ahead, or I need you to change a couple things, but sure. Once you're done, then we can start playing. And, you know, how much does this cost to participate in something like that? Uh, it's $10 for a subscription right now, I think. Okay, and, and then um, when we go public, there will be a different um, a different subscription cost, but there will always be a low cost option to play Storium. Okay, maybe that's why it's not something that's like visible there on their front page because it's is it only the people from Kickstarter involved right now? Yes, that's correct. Okay, um, yes, yeah, so that's probably why it's not mentioned right up there. Um, so, so Storium will, if somebody needs more information, they have a Twitter account and a Facebook account, and you can just... Yeah, you can tweet at me, at Snarkbat, on Twitter, or you can tweet at Storium, and we'll be happy to answer any of your questions. Okay. See, it's so exciting. Your dog is just like, looking out. 
she's really happy right now. I'm not really sure what she's dreaming about. That's awesome. She's dreaming that she's being interviewed on Vodka Club. It's true. <laughs> Um, okay, so um, so that wraps up Storium. And is there any last-minute dead scare information that we didn't touch upon that you need people to know about? No, but uh, one thing I will sort of, you know, suggest for people is I also have a Patreon. Okay, um, great. And it's Blind Lady Versus, and I do uh, reviews of video games from a low-vision gamer perspective. So okay. you can find that on Patreon as Blind Lady Versus. Okay, and, you know, since we were talking about gaming, I wanted to ask, like, one last thing. Um, we were talking about uh, RPG gaming here and tabletop gaming, so it's kind of different than what gets, like, a lot of the, the biggest buzz and, and um, talked about in the, in the press, anyway, in our, in our nerd press, right. I should say. Um, but I was wondering if, since uh, you're so focused on feminism and intersectionality and, and everything, did Gamergate affect you? In I knew that question was coming. Yes, okay. it has affected me. Um, that's why I go by Elsa S. Henry. Uh, not going to reveal what the S stands for, um, but my maiden name is pretty recognizable. Um I've gotten a lot of hate mail. I've gotten a couple of rape threats. Um, they don't tend to come through Twitter, uh, which I find both more terrifying because I can't prove that it's happening, but also somewhat comforting because I don't have to see it the minute I log into Twitter. Um, most of what I get is responses to me talking about disability. There are a lot of people who are really unhappy with the fact that I want disability to be focused on in games. And are they? Do they start throwing out like percentage numbers? Like it only affects one percent of people. It, Why should we cater to you? They throw that out, but they also just have made threats about me specifically not being able to see them coming. Oh yeah, that's that's just absurd. So it's it's been a little scary. Um, but I haven't been getting it to the degree that Brianna Wu or Anita Sarkeesian has been. So it's, you know, I have a sneaking suspicion today is going to be one of those days where I'm not supposed to look at my Twitter feed, though. Because okay. I just went up on io9 with a feminist game. Sure. So it's likely to, to get attention. Yeah. And, I mean, during all of this, have you considered not putting out the game? Nope. Okay. Um, I firmly believe that this is a career that I love, and I'm not going to let people stop me from doing something I enjoy. I only just started writing games. I don't want to stop now. Yeah, I and I, I think as long as people like you are there and making games and being involved in places that are safe, like Dreamation and Metatopia and stuff, I, I think... You know what? I don't think we're the minority. Let me put it that way. Um, it just might feel that way a lot of times when they have their, um, basically their like mob mentality and they start ganging up on people. Yep. But I, I really don't believe that we're the minority. We're not. And I only know that because I've surrounded myself with so many amazing people. And I can't imagine that they're the majority. I can't imagine that they're the majority when I know this many people who disagree with them. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, 
but I'm I'm just I'm so proud of you for trying and then succeeding and making new content. Thank you. I'm really proud of the content I'm making. And it means a lot to me that I have an all like the core team of the game is all women. And then we have non-binary contributors. Mm-hmm. But I'm really proud to have a team of all women with me. And I don't really care that Gamergate won't like that because to me this is what's important. Cool. Well, I think that's a good note for us to to wrap up on. Um, So the easiest thing to do as far as the Kickstarter goes is just go to the search line at the top of Kickstarter and type in Dead Scare. That's correct. And it should be the first one that comes up. Yep. Okay. And and if you have any questions about Dead Scare, you can tweet at me. Um, My Twitter name is Snarkbat. So there you go. Okay. And so we'll definitely be seeing you around these parts and around gaming and on Twitter. And um, so, guys, don't forget, Elsa's got her own Patreon going, and we've got the Patreon going. You just go to slash Amber Unmasked for that. And you'll be able to, you know, make sure that we keep our community, our nerd community, as supportive and inclusive as possible. Yay, inclusion. Yay, inclusion. (laughs) All right. Cheers, everybody. My screwdriver's long since gone. I don't know about you. Mine is done. Okay, absolutely done. All right. Have a good day, everybody.